1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Stephanie Jansky, Director of Programming at the City Club, and I am pleased to introduce today's forum, a conversation looking ahead at the 2020 presidential election. Yesterday, Beto O'Rourke declared his candidacy for President of the United States, joining a long line of Democrats challenging President Trump for our nation's highest office. At this moment, we're still about a year away from the Super Tuesday primary, If we voted today, the ballot would contain more than a dozen Democratic candidates alone and more female candidates running for a single party's nomination than at any point in history. While the sheer number of Democratic candidates has dominated the news cycle, there are other potential candidates to consider. Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz expressed interest to run as a centrist independent, and while at the moment there's only one formal Republican challenger to President Trump, Other Republicans, including former Ohio Governor John Kasich, are rumored to be considering runs of their own. What might the race for president look like when it comes to Ohio next March? Who will emerge from the Democratic pact that gets bigger by the day? And what issues will shape the discussion from now until next spring and on to November? Today we'll find out. We've assembled a panel of national voices with experience in presidential campaigns, whether it be running them or following them closely to share their insights. Guiding the conversation is IdeaStream's executive editor, Joe Froelich. In this role, he is responsible for content produced by Cleveland's NPR and PBS affiliates. He's been a journalist in Cleveland since 1981 when he joined the Plain Dealer as a features writer. During more than three decades at the paper, he was a Metro reporter, a correspondent, and a chief editorial writer. He joined the staff at IdeaStream in 2017. A native of Northern Illinois, Mr. Froelich earned his undergraduate degree from the Northwestern University Medill School of Journalism and attended graduate school at the University of California at Berkeley. In 2017, he was inducted into the Press Club of Cleveland's Journalism Hall of Fame. And with that, I turn the form over to you, Mr. Froelich.
2: Thanks, Stephanie. Welcome everybody. Thanks for coming out today. as Stephanie said, we're about a year out from, uh, from the time of the Ohio primary, and by this time uh, next year, we'll already have several states behind us. The, the field will be winnowed, and we'll talk about what, how, how we'll get there and where we'll go from, uh, from there on to November of 2020. Let's start with, uh, I want to introduce the panel to you first. I'll start from my left and go down the, the road, the row. Um, Mark Everson is making action. It's the fourth time he's been to the City Club. Some of his other visits, he was here as IRS commissioner. So if you have tax questions, please wait until after the question period.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, he was also it head. Of,
0: all right when I was there. <laughs>
2: he was also head of the Red Cross. So if you need, uh, you know, CPR, you know, he's available for that too. Um, he worked in the in the Reagan administration, where he helped oversee uh, in, uh, the actually the, the rollout of the 1986 Immigration Reform Bill. Uh, in 2015 and 16, he sought the Republican nomination for president. And while he was well-treated by editorial boards, he was not so well-treated by the Republican National Committee, which never invited him to the debate stage. So we're happy to have him no, with us here today. No, that was the
0: media that h- it handled that.
2: <laughs> OK. All right. Um, and um, he currently lives in Mississippi, where he has just been honored as the parent of the year in?
0: Hascagoula Goche School District.
2: Of course. Of course, we all know that. <laughs> in. Uh, Next, moving down the line, we have Claire Malone. She's a native of Shaker Heights, Ohio. Uh, She's been here before. She's actually been even on this panel before. In fact, she's famous for knocking over the gong when she was here the last time. So you see where we put Claire this time. She's far away. The more important reason she's here with us, though, is she's the senior political writer for the website 538, and one of the hosts of their their politics podcast. And finally, at uh, at my my far left, uh, we have uh, (laughs)
3: Where I like to be, where, well. I, where I like to be. <laughs>
2: we have uh, former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner. I first got to know um, Senator Turner when she was an executive assistant to Cleveland Mayor Mike White. She then served on Cleveland City Council before she went down to Columbus. Uh, she really burst onto the national stage about four years ago. Very uh, prominently seen on MSNBC, met you as a supporter of, of Senator Bernie Sanders and his campaign. And she currently serves as co-chair of the Sanders campaign for 2020. Um, to get here today, um, Senator uh, Turner started in uh, Charleston, South Carolina this morning. She zipped in here. She's joining with us. And when she's done here, she's off to Nevada. So we thank her for, uh, for, w- for making this possible. I should also point out that, uh, that Nina was part of the Leadership Cleveland class of 2011. The best w- class. Widely, rec- widely perceived as the best, best class, class ever. <laughs> so thank you. Um, Since we're a year out from the Ohio primary, let me start by asking each of you to to look into your crystal ball. So a year from now, it's March of 2020, what issue is President Trump going to be talking about and what's the main issue that his challengers on the Democratic side and perhaps on the GOP side as well are going to be talking about? Senator, let's start with you and then we'll go this way.
3: Well, thanks, Joe. And there's no place like home, so I'm glad to be back. Well, President Trump will definitely talk about how unfair he's been treated. He will talk about immigration, I think, still in, in a way that we should not talk about it in this country, unfortunately. I think he will still be fixated by that, especially since this wall is going nowhere. As far as the Democrats, healthcare. That is a pivotal issue in this country across political spectrums. It is the strongest, most connected issue that we have. It polls very well. About 70% of the American people, regardless of their political ideology, believes that the government needs to take a stronger role in providing health care for this country. We are dying earlier. Our health outcomes are not as strong as other industrial nations. We pay more money. It's not a good return on our investment. And I will note that since 2016, since Senator Bernie Sanders has been singing this song for a very long time, you can see the shift in this country as almost every single major Democratic candidate that's seeking the office of President of the United States of America has certainly, is certainly following his lead.
4: All right. Claire? Well, I think I probably agree with Nina that the issue that Trump will be talking the most about is immigration because it's something that plays in well to what worked for him in 2016, which was um, identity politics, racialized politics, um, and it also kind of plays into his law and order. Um, emphasis. So that's what I'd say Trump will probably be talking about. When it comes to the Democrats, you know, it's hard for me to tell because I could see it going one of two ways. One way is health care is the issue that most Americans, if you're talking about policy issues, frankly, a lot of people don't have really firm policy issues. They kind of go with what their, their team uh, says, right? So if you're a Republican, you might fit your views to slot into the Republican platform. If you're a Democrat, you might fit your views to slot into the Democratic platform. But Americans actually have pretty... I guess, independent views on healthcare, right? Because we all experience it. So I think the Democrats want to be talking about healthcare in March of 2020. Um, but I'm curious to see whether or not that'll be the major tone of the debate. I think we saw in 2016 that um, Trump is a, a personality that can um, drag the national debate into identity politics, into um, I think areas that the Democrats don't wanna be going into. So it's kind of unclear to me what the, what March 2020 will look like. I think that there's an ideal version of what it'll look like, and then there's the possibility that it takes a tenor that is more akin to the 2016 campaign. Okay.
0: Mark. I agree with both, both those uh, overall conclusions. I would say this. that the, the first thing is, does the media focus on personalities or issues at all? And I would tell you that in 16, it was about personalities much more than it was about issues. And uh, have they learned their lesson? I don't know, we're gonna see. I would tell you based on the rollout of the Democratic candidates, it's not so clear that they've really learned, learned their lesson yet. The second thing in terms of issues, uh, how much is this dominated by the left? At, or again, do you have a real open debate Last time, the Democratic side, you know, Sanders got screwed. Oh, he did. He did. Yeah, he did. So um, that debate was skewed. Is there, is there a real open debate on that side? I would say uh, I agree with, what, with the issues you both mentioned. I would say one emerging issue that I think is really important is technology. It cuts across everything from the crashes of the Boeing planes mm-hmm to the Facebook privacy issue, to uh, the internet and where you're talking about New Zealand where you have tragedies now fueled on language that runs through the internet. So the technology and the changing attitude towards technology, it may be one of those rare issues where left and right agree that it it has to be looked at. And the last point I would get to is uh, really, is there a debate on the Republican side? It was sort of alluded to. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a debate on the Republican side, that, that will very much color what happens.
2: All right, can you talk, expand a little bit on that last point, though, about technology? How does that play out in the course of a presidential campaign?
0: Well, um, I think Bob Mueller's gonna tell us.
2: that technology.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, they used, the, the question is, the Russians definitely mm-hmm. used that technology last time around. And uh, clearly that's an example of how technology can be used in the political debate. And uh, look, there are teams of people all over the country who are running campaigns, local campaigns. They're, they're using the technology, it's not just at the presidential level. So I do think that that will be an issue in terms of the tools that the, can- the candidates at all levels are using. And also, frankly, I think technology, the use of itself, will get a lot of attention, Joe.
2: Claire, Nina, do you, do, do, would you agree, and do you see, are there, are there particular issues about technology and how it permeates society that you think will, actually, will, per, will percolate up during the campaign?
4: I think some of what you're talking about is, I would call them democracy issues, more right. than just technology issues. So I think, you know, when you refer to local campaigns starting to use the techniques that we saw the Russians using, there was actually, on the Democratic side, um, when Doug Jones was running for that special election in Alabama mm-hmm. in 2017, we saw that Democratic strategists were found to have used these kind of subversive techniques. You know, I think it's really easy to, we saw this in the midterms, to really easy to create Facebook bots that spread in for misinformation. So that's something that's not going away. And I think that that's, you see, you know, that's going to be a, fi- a fixture of our elections for the, right. for the foreseeable future, in part because you can also, you know, there are technologies where you can make fake videos, where you can, you know, put up a candidate, a national candidate saying something that they didn't actually say, right? So there is a, I think there are democracy issues that are um, that we're facing that are spread through technology is what I would that's where I would put the tech issue is a democracy issue actually.
3: Mm-hmm. Totally agreed and glad that Mark brought that this up. One of the beautiful things about the city club and I'm not just saying this because I'm here but to bring people face to face. I mean we know that the public square now is virtual. And to Claire's point and also, you know, what Mark was bringing up is that you know, people can pretend and do anything really that they want to do without really fearing it catching up with them. And so in many ways, it taints the water of democracy. If someone uses the technology for evil means, so that's anywhere from cyber warfare from other countries, Russia being one, but not certainly not the only one, to individuals in this country who are on those social media platforms pretending to be someone that they're not, and also saying and doing things that totally malign someone. Now, you're in the court of public opinion, you are guilty until proven innocent. And sometimes you can't prove your innocence, the very strong point that Claire brings up. And so the question does become what type of society do we want to be in the, this very beautiful moment of technology where it can be used to do incredibly good things because you can connect with people all over the world, but it also can be used to be de- very damaging and deadly things as well. And then another uh, string to that that we didn't necessarily talk about is how in lots of rural areas, you know, they are not connected because they need more technological mm. advancements in terms of connectivity that has a serious impact as well on how people will have to get their, their news and how they connect with other people. So the lack of connectivity, too, can be a problem. All right.
2: uh, Claire, when an incumbent seeks re-election, isn't the election generally a referendum on, on his, and we've only had his, his, his performance? And if so, w- will 2020 be all about Donald Trump? Or is there any political discussion in America these days that isn't all about <laughs> Donald Trump?
4: Well, he certainly is the subtext of a lot of things. Um, I think yes and no. A Waffling answer, but a true (laughs) one. Um, I think yes in a lot of ways uh, You know Donald Trump is an unusual president an unprecedented president Um, and you did see the 2018 midterms Um, The house swung for the Democrats. We often see midterm elections as a reaction to the incumbent party Um, And I think so in some ways Yes, people will be reacting in 20 to Donald Trump what I think makes the 2020 election a little bit different is that the Democrats had such a wandering in the wilderness moment after 2016 um, because their candidate, who was kind of the um, anointed candidate, I know, I know not controversially, but um, that failed, right? The direction of the party was kind of um, upended. They lost in unexpected places. We, you know, we're, we're sitting in the blue wall, right? What the Democrats thought the upper Midwest would be was a place that would kind of assure the fact that they, they could still win against Donald Trump. And so I think right now we're at this inflection point in part because of the direction of the party, but in part because of things that have been going on in American culture for decades, but also for the past few years. Black Lives Matter, um, the fact that climate change movements are getting, I think, picking up greater uh, traction with younger people. There's just a different cultural movement in the party and frankly Bernie Sanders did, he was like a successful loser in many ways because he made democratic socialism something that was obscure into something that is now becoming kind of a mainstream ideology within the party. So I think the Democratic Party itself is having a referendum on what it means to be a Democrat in 2020. And so there are a lot of people who might be Biden voters who say, well, we kind of liked it under the Obama coalition, right? Like a a more centrist version of things. Whereas Nina and Bernie Sanders and quite a few other candidates, um, some of whom we might have thought were moderates a few years ago, are saying, no, we need to go in a more left direction. So I think we are at this particularly unique inflection point for the Democratic Party itself, which doesn't make it all about Donald Trump.
3: It's always going to be about President Trump. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it really is. I mean, he drives money. I mean, let's mm-hmm. just be honest. Uh, every word that's, that he speaks is covered. Mm-hmm. And he understands this. I don't like what he stands for. I don't like his policies. but you know, there's something in the urban vernacular, or, or the urban poet Tupac once said, don't hate the player, hate the game. And President Trump is very good at the game, because this, this, everything about what we do, for the most part, unfortunately, is about the, the stage. You know, all of the world is, is a stage. That's what Shakespeare said. So reality TV pretty much prepared him for his lane that he occupies, and he does control that lane, and he controls it very fiercely. And so for Democrats, and and I hope that he is primaried, I do hope that our former governor, John Kasich, I hope that he does run against him. President Trump does need to be primary. But in terms of the Democrats, I will say that, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders led a movement, and that is a lot different from just running a campaign. His mark is everywhere. And it's not just so much, I mean, I know it's easy in politics to define what is left and what is right, but I want to stand up and say what is right in the sense of what is right, not left or right, but what is the right thing to do. And I would surmise that the movement of the Democrats to the right thing to do is very much rooted in the needs of the American people that the system is absolutely unequiv- unequivocally rigged, it has been so for a very long time. People are suffering in this country and they, there is an awakening to that. 20, what 2016 did was Senator Bernie Sanders was able to achieve that no other candidate in modern history has is he spoke to the needs of the people in an authentic, no BS way and that, Woke people up, and especially the millennial generation who understand very clearly the type of world that they want to live in. Another point I want to make, whether it's democratic socialism or social democracy, every time we dial 911, that's socialism. Every time we drive down a paved road, that's socialism. Every time we are collectively deciding to put money in a pot for a greater good. You know, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King once said that we have. Socialism for the rich, but rugged individualism for the poor. The type of socialism that 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 Senator Sanders is talking about is very much rooted in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King or President FDR, the 1944 Economic Bill of Rights, where he really laid out health care education, taking care of people who can't take care of themselves. So it's not so much, and I hope that people don't get caught up on these labels that, labels that try to malign folks unless aligned with what the greatest needs are of the greatest number of people in this country. So if people want to call that moving left, I say it's doing the right thing.
0: So let me respond to a couple points there, Nina. Um, first, I would say that it's not so clear about Trump. Uh, I, I grew up in New York, started in the city in the mid 70s. By the time I went to Washington for the first time in 82, Donald Trump was already a minor figure uh, on page six of the post, that kind of stuff. What he, what he did successfully was he, he built a brand based on sticking his finger in the socket and saying, look at me. He's done that for 40 years and it has worked in the context of a political campaign. The other thing is you gotta look at the way he made his money. He made his money in real estate and in entertainment where all you need is a small share. You can be uber wealthy with a 10% share or a 3% share or maybe half a percent share of the Manhattan real estate market. What he has failed to do I believe, and what opens this up to a real contest, it shouldn't be a contest at all, is he's stuck with that base to his, and I would say to a traditional center-right Republican, peril of the party and of the nation. And that is, that's a bad thing, but he, does, he still doesn't seem to get it, that he, he has lost millions of GOP voters and all but a few of the independents. And if the Democrats, and I think you and I would park company on a fair amount of the substance, uh, but if the Democrats take this too far, they can reelect him. They can do that. Because if there is a choice between what people know and may not like, and what they may really fear, um, that'll, that'll, that makes it a tough choice. Go ahead, Claire.
3: Yeah,
4: the one thing, I I think I would say is Nina, you were saying, "Don't hate the player, hate the game." Donald Trump has created a different paradigm for politics. The one thing, the one way I think Democrats could react in who they nominate is Trump had a hundred percent name recognition, a hundred percent reputational recognition in America when he when he ran for president, um, which got him obviously a huge amount of airtime and media, perhaps an unfair amount of airtime in media. And I think the Democrats recognize on some level that um, they need a personality that is big, that att- attracts yes. media attention. So I would say that's one of the reasons why Sanders is a big contender, in right. part because he was this grassroots, kind of out of nowhere for most people, candidate who just seemed lo- he was... He's real. Yeah, he earned that and print. then and then the other person who I think who just announced yesterday, who is a similar out of nowhere um, candidate, and I'm curious to see how his his presidential candidacy might play differently than his Senate candidacy is Beto O'Rourke, who is someone who, I mean, ad nauseum media articles refer to him as Kennedy-esque. There's certainly um, some some mythmaking going on there, but he's a guy who attracted crazy national attention in a matter of few months, and I think one of the reasons why you see some people from Obama world kind of gravitating towards that, that candidacy is they say, oh, okay, well, we need, an, we need a big personality, um, and Beto O'Rourke is a big personality. So in some ways, Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, who hasn't declared yet.
0: Warren? I'm interested in what you two think of Warren, because she's, she's well known, and she's done the policy work.
3: Senator Warren has achieved. I mean, she's in this race, so she's running. I mean, the people will ultimately, ultimately decide. I mean, what I will say to the point that Claire made is what the American people need is a true public servant, no more games. And we've had enough games with President Donald Trump, so just because somebody gets a lot of media attention, i.e., President Trump is the greatest example of somebody who got a lots of media attention for doing absolutely nothing but being a showman and look what kind of state this country is in compared to somebody who is a true public servant and who has the receipts over 40 years to prove it. So there's a big difference between Senator Bernie Sanders and Congressman O'Rourke and President Trump in that he has been authentic all of his life and his public reputation as an elected official puts him head and shoulders because we got the receipts. People can roll the tape. The same thing that he's saying today is very much reminiscent of what Uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson with the Rainbow Coalition when he talks about building Mm. a political revolution he is talking about the intersectionality of race and class and gender and sexual orientation and religion and no religion it is the bubbling up and the bringing together of people who have the greatest need and I don't think that that is stretching too far so I see him in a separate category no surprise to anybody in this room (laughs) and I put the other folks in the other category. I think
4: think Warren um, Warren is an interesting candidate because, in some ways, she has also, she's, she's relatively new to politics, right? Mm-hmm. She, um, she kind of came into the Washington, D.C. milieu during the 2008 financial crisis, right. um, was only elected as a senator relatively recently. Um, one thing that I think has potential, well, there are two things I think have potentially hurt her electorally. One, she's a woman, and like let's just put it out there in the room, that I think a lot of people either don't want to vote for a woman, or strategically say, well, Trump beat a woman last time, we can't nominate a woman. Second is I think that she has been a person who's tangled with Donald Trump for a long time. In some ways, maybe people tire of that dynamic. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. Um, and it's been interesting to me to watch, you know, we uh, 538, we track the endorsements that people get. And Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand have gotten not as many endorsements as, say, an Amy Klobuchar or a Kamala Harris. So Mm. there's kind of an interesting um, jockeying going on, and I think in some ways Warren perhaps suffers from uh, people maybe think she's too far left, she's a woman, and geez, she's tangled with Donald Trump, maybe we don't want that, maybe we want a happy warrior, or a person who has, in the mode of Sanders, someone who just, that's his message, is. Uh, you know economic populism and and we 're going to stick to that so war it 's been interesting to watch now again it 's March a lot of things can change um, but it 's been interesting to watch what candidates get endorsements in this uh, in this campaign and, and so far Warren is certainly falling behind
2: you 'd mentioned her in the context of, of other women who are running. do you think that as the Democrat, as the field winnows, which it obviously will is there Is there space for one woman among the finalists, or are there there multiple?
4: (laughs) Well, women are human beings, and (laughs) (laughs) so uh, I think that you actually see a range of um, personalities, policy platforms, so yes, I think you could see more than one woman. I mean, I think let's take the the two women who are doing, quote-unquote, the best right now, Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, who's a little bit out of nowhere, um, although maybe not too... The Midwesterners here in this room to whom she hopes to appeal, right? Mm-hmm. So Amy Klobuchar's appeal is a little bit what the Joe Biden appeal might be, right? Which is, I'm a pretty moderate senator. Elect me. I will steady the course and be kind of a happy warrior. Um, someone like Kamala Harris is very much um, appealing to, uh, you know, a more multiracial coalition, a more left coalition. Kamala Harris signed on to Senator Sanders single-payer um, health care bill, which has kind of become a litmus test for sort of the, the left of the party. Um, so she's a little bit more of what, you know, this new direction of the Democratic Party, going a little bit more to the left, being more openly progressive, being more critical of the racial politics of the country and the Democratic Party in general. Um, so I don't know. I think, yes, I think there'll probably be more than one woman candidate still standing by the time everyone in this room gets to vote in March of next year.
2: All right. Um, We've come to the halfway point. Uh, I want to, Stephanie's got a few announcements to make and then we'll go to your questions in the audience.
1: Today we are listening to a forum looking ahead to the 2020 presidential election featuring Mark Iverson, the 46th Commissioner of Internal Revenue and former Republican candidate for President of the United States, Claire Malone, Shaker Heights native and senior political writer for 538, and Nina Turner, former Ohio Senator and co-chair of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. Our moderator is IdeaStream Executive Editor Joe Froelich. We're about to begin the audience Q&A, and may we have the first question, please.
2: Thank you. Uh, My question deals with how close is each party to running over its respective cliff, remembering that it was only eight years between Goldwater and McGovern, and will we get a third party in the middle when both parties run over their respective cliffs? Thank you. You want to talk about that? Maybe a little bit about Howard Schultz? Uh, Mark, do you want to start?
0: Sure. I, I think that's a real issue. Um, As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing wrong with the Republican brand. It's unity under Lincoln. It's busting up the trust and taking care of the park system under Roosevelt. It's Ike and National Service and liberating from the Nazis, Reagan, you know, the coalition that brought down the the wall. Um, Even, if you like, if you don't like George Bush, look at the AIDS initiative. There are a lot of good things the Republicans have done, but we are in bad shape. And now it looks like the Democrats may have a rerun of what the Republicans did. So I think a lot is to be seeing what happens on the Democratic side and does that crowd out all discussion of issues like technology that maybe there's some progress that could be made from both sides, but I worry that, the, that, that we're on the edge of a collapse of the two-party system and you could get the emergence of somebody, not a Howard Schultz, you could get the emergence of a Donald Trump on steroids in, 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 without the party structure at all. That's, that's my worry.
3: I'm not Nina? so much necessarily worried about that. I mean, this is a representative democracy and we should not fear robust debate Actually, what we need is more involvement and engagement from the American people to ensure that that does not happen. In terms of a third party, you know, if, if that's the will of the American people, I mean, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party pretty much have the system sold up. They are private clubs. I mean, that's just the reality of it. We don't like to talk about it that way, but that's exactly what they are. And they dominate the political space. But in terms of going over a cliff, I just don't really see that happening. But what can happen is I do agree that in terms of allowing another Trump-like figure to take hold, he didn't need a third party to be be President Trump. He did it through the Republican Party. But my message this afternoon is to the American people to ready up and to have the courage to challenge and to question. No matter what your political affiliation is, at the end of the day, we should want what is right, what is just, and what is good, for the United States of America.
4: Yeah, I think we should also think about the fact that um, American 2019 is at a, I would say, cultural and economic inflection point. I guess I keep on using inflection point, but I do think it's true in a lot of ways. One, I think, you know, if, if we're in Cleveland, I think a lot of people already know this. Um, the economy is going to be changing radically in the next couple of decades. It's going to be more automation, not just for manufacturing jobs, but for a lot of different industries. I think that's going to change the economy radically. And it's gonna, you know, we already see ideas like universal basic in- income bubbling up as a way to deal with all right, well, what do we do when we have widespread jobless- joblessness because certain industries no longer need uh, people in them to function? And then I also think we have to look at things like climate change, which are um, galvanizing, as I said before, younger people in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the third sort of X factor, which I think has been accelerated quite a bit by Trump, is America's um, potential loss of status in the global sphere. So I think we, a lot of us, you know, probably learned in school about American exceptionalism and we kind of believed it, even if we learned it as an academic concept. And I think in a lot of ways what we've seen is that we're not immune to a lot of the forces that are at work in the world. Um, The rise of nationalism is something that we saw in Europe um, and we're seeing it here. Um, so I think that there is maybe a bit more of a, of a flattening of the global um, marketplace, the global leadership market, marketplace, and, and you know, you'll see things like the rise of China. Um, I just think we are in a different um, paradigm, and a lot of American politics is very nostalgic. It calls back to um, the, po- the post-World War II halcyon days of American manufacturing, of a rising middle class, of a baby boom, and maybe that's just not our future.
1: What do you think the candidates are gonna do about the kids skipping school to fight climate change?
3: I hope they consider that as a a learning experience outside of the four walls of the classroom. I really applaud the young people for really getting involved in crying out and really saying to the people who control public policy that if we don't take care of Mother Earth, We all have a problem, no matter if we're boomers, Xers, Gen Xers, or Zs, so I I really do applaud that. And if mama and daddy or grandma is all right with it, then we got to be all
0: right with it, too. I I think this is an important point, that there is more activism coming from the young, and I think, to Nina's point, Senator Sanders gets some credit for that, but you've seen it across a variety of ways. You've seen it after some of the shootings, you see it in this climate issue. Uh, for a long time, I think that the young people were just disengaged. I grew up in the 60s, and uh, people were really engaged. And that has a lot of pluses. It can have its minuses. I lived across the street in New York from where the Weathermen had demolished a town home at the cost of loss of life. So there can be excesses, but the fact that the young people are starting to care, that to Nina's point, is a plus in the, in the d- democracy. So study tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Go
1: ahead. Um, so I want to ask about the role of the left centrist in the Democratic Party. So I'm sure there is an analogous situation on the right. Um, I'm using myself as an example. So my heroes are LBJ and FDR. I'm having a hard time seeing myself in the current Democratic Party particularly as a Jew with what I would describe, and this is controversial with the rise of anti-Semitism in the party and the failure to contain it, um, do you, where, where do you see the role of centrists? In, I would say both in the Democratic and in the Republican Party, and is that going to be a, a problem or an issue or determinant in the, in the elections?
2: Claire, you want to start with that? And you guys do a lot with data. Are there, are there centrists left? <laughs>
4: uh, in the midterm elections, we called them the radical centrists. Um, because there aren't that many le- left. I mean, well, there are some, but um, I think we're increasingly seeing them become pivotal votes, but um, they're less representative of the base of their parties because Americans are getting more um, polarized. The Democratic Party went through a, a really big um, change under, o- under the o- Obama administration where more people than ever um, identified as, they went from identifying as moderate to very liberal. So that's an interesting shift. Um, I think that's also always been the case, particularly with the Democratic Party because it's a big tent. Um, The Republican Party is interesting because it's seen it's it's really gotten much more conservative, Um, and I think because it has um, you know it's it's an older, whiter party. Um, It's also getting to be a less educated party. Um, So in some ways, it's become it it has a little bit of a different mentality. and I think that the Democratic Party has always kind of fought with um, the, the very, the wide, the wide range of, of ideologies existing within it. I, I'll let the kind of the party folks maybe yeah. take this though because. What's the
3: message to
2: a moderate Democrat,
3: Nina? There, there's room for everybody. I mean, each side feels like it has to fight for its space. I mean, if you are a progressive Democrat, you feel like you have to fight for your space. If you are a more moderate Democrat, you feel like you have to fight for your space. So you just have to fight for your space. Each side feels as though the other side has overtaken it. But the Democratic Party is a big tent party. It should continue to be a big tent party. And to me, there's room for
0: everybody. So I think the center is bigger than, than the, the experts tell you. I, I really believe that. Um, when I was campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire, when you met and talked to real voters instead of just party activists, you got a very different take on things. What you had in 2016 was ultimately a, a contest between two very unattractive candidates. Um, one person characterized it to me, he said it's a choice of which disease do you want to get? <laughs> and, um, there are a lot of people who felt that way. So this is where you get to the intersection of personality and policy. I think that somebody with the right personality, who's from the center can grab the center back. They'll have to fight the party hierarchies. You look at Iowa right now, the, the state party is, we don't want any, anybody um, challenging Trump, even though the polling shows, that a big chunk of the Iowa Republicans who support Trump also would like to see a challenge. So I just think this is a little more uh, complicated than, than the folks on the cable stations would tell you it is.
4: The one thing I will say though is I also think that the order of, we have spent the last few months since the midterms, frankly since the election, the primary election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez discussing the role of socialism and democratic socialists in America. And I think what we've had a lot of people um, enter into the presidential campaign early who are more to the left. I think um, now that O'Rourke as a moderate is in the race and when Biden announces he's a moderate in the race, I think we'll see a little bit more almost like coming to the the, the balance because there'll be a range of candidates with different views mm-hmm. from moderate to, to progressive left um, and you'll see a little bit more debate because I think right now we are operating in this kind of um, the, the big debates over the past few months have been about the more far left of the party, in part because they are a growing new constituency. And it, it, I think you can't get around that. And I also think that there's maybe a, a little bit of a generational gap within the Democrats too. Um, but I do kind of think that once a couple of these moderate candidates are in the presidential race, you'll see a little bit more in media discussion about that. So some of it's environmental.
0: I just read with uh, interest the possibility of a movement that's in its beginning to reduce the age of the voters to from 18 to 16. My question is, how do you think that would affect the outcome for either party? Who wants to go first
3: Well, for if that's the case, Senator Sanders is going to win hands down. That's <laughs> <a> short- <laughs>
4: Yeah, lowering the age would definitely be better for the Democrats.
0: I think there'd be a lot of parents I know who would be locking their kids in the basement. <laughs> and, but, uh, you know, no, I That's not nice. That's not nice, yes. but I, I have a 10 year old and uh, he's actually very, uh, Jeff knows him. He's a pretty astute guy, but um, I, I think we've, we've got enough of a debate here. Can people drink at 18? They can go fight in the army. So we got. let's center in on when you become an adult before we start tampering with the votes. I think it's crazy that people can't drink at 18. You've got to just say, you're an adult, you're responsible for your actions, and here you go. So uh, I hadn't heard that one, though.
3: As a, mo- as a mother, I'm glad they can't drink at the age of 18. Just <laughs> at least that. they tell you Cause, that. Because even at 21, it's still a little too young for me. All right. As a mother, speaking for the mamas. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> All right, back there. So this, this maybe falls uh, along the lines of the question about political centrists um, but maybe speaks more towards personality, which you've been distinguishing throughout the discussion. But we've had a couple periods in the last decade where one party had controlled the presidency, the House, and the Senate, and I think that constituents in both parties did not see the progress they were expecting um, during that time that they held power. And so as a voter, it's clear to me that in order to get things done, you need that ability to reach across the aisle. So regardless of where they sit on the political spectrum, which candidates do you see in either party having that ability to reach across the aisle and make real progress? Wants to go first?
4: I mean, I'll, I'll go first and say, I think that, um, that there isn't a lot of across the aisle work anymore, and that's an unattractive answer, but true. Um, and so, I don't know, I can't predict the future and, and know what candidate will do that? I mean, I think someone like Beto O'Rourke has said a lot of stuff about, he doesn't have a lot of clear policy views, but his one big, I guess, move has been stylistic, which is to say, I'm running a happy campaign and we're gonna talk to everyone. But I don't know in the reality of 2019 whether or not that works.
0: I would say to you, and I served in the executive branch twice, under Reagan and the second Bush. And I've seen some of those decisions get made like, the Farm Bill under the uh, second Bush. We need the Farm Bill for the reelect. And you get to where you need what you need from your side because of the politics, which is why I've advocated a single term for the president, change it to where you have just one term. He or she is freed from political considerations. Where we are right now, uh, they drive just to their own party's interests. Uh, And what happens? They do a lousy job addressing legislation. Look at the Affordable Care Act. Came in without a Republican vote. So there were changes that both sides agreed on, like the 35-hour work week. Everybody agreed that was a bad thing. You weren't gonna get the Republicans to change it, and you weren't gonna get the Democrats to change it. Now you got the tax bill, same thing. So until we break up that dynamic, we're gonna continue to get legislation that is flawed. I would suggest to you that what is the one plus that's happening now with the Democrats taking, the, uh, taking control of the House, you will get oversight. I don't have high regard for the Congress in terms of legislation. I think oversight is critical. When I ran the IRS, I testified 50 times before Congress. It was never pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I did a better job because they asked me tough questions. So. We've gotta, we've gotta change this so that the president does what the Constitution says, execute the laws. Doesn't worry about the politics. Nina,
2: anything to say? Mean, it
3: depends on what you're reaching across the aisle for. You know, that's vitally important. I mean, we just saw in the Senate, that's controlled by Republicans, the vote on Yemen was bipartisan, led by Senator Bernie Sanders once again. So, you know, it can happen. Where there is a will, there is absolutely a way in my mind, especially serving as a state senator of this state in the 25th Senate District, and I was there in 2011 when redistricting happened, I got the, you know, your question led me to think about that, that when it comes to drawing lines, one of the reasons why we have such hyper-partisanship, and Ohio is a very good, bad example of that, where you have. 12 Republicans who go all the time, no matter how the voters vote in this state, and four Democrats who always go all the time, no matter how the voters vote in this state. And Ohio is not the only state, but it's one of the worst examples. I would I would argue that we have to do something as a nation about gerrymandering that forces people from a philosophical policy perspective to the extremes just to win the race because they're so worried about being primaried that every other logical good thing goes out of the door because I just want to be reelected and then once they get to Congress you have this extreme tug of war. Now you know debate is not a bad thing but the hyper 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 partisanship that we have seen over the last ten years is a problem for this country. And gerrymandering has a lot to do with it, which is why I voted against the maps here in the state of Ohio in 2011, because of that reason.
4: Right. Nina, you bring up a good point, um, and I want to reflect more on that. Um, I think it's not necessarily the candidate Trump that's led to this environment. I actually think the internet favors the extreme and the dramatic. I mean, look at Yelp reviews, one star or five star, typically, right? Um, and it seemed in 2016, the right and the left both benefited from this, from this new channel, and obviously this new environment we're in. I'm curious, though, we've seen we're starting to see how campaigns and brands are being, are reflecting this change. But I'm curious to see how you all are seeing this reflect in policy and platform. And is it embracing this age of extremism? Uh, Radical has been thrown around a lot. Is it embracing it? Is it is it reflecting it at all? I'm just curious to hear your opinions on those on both sides.
3: Yeah, I want to try to make sure I'm understanding the, the question. You know, radical is a word, you know, much like socialism sometimes where people see it as negative, but, you know, as Dr. Angela Davis said once, radical just means getting at the root. So, it depends you know, if we're going to get at the root of the problems in this country, then that's one thing. But in terms of brand, what I think I understand you to be saying is that people can manipulate brands that have a manipulation on the process of thought when people look at candidates. I hope that that's what you were saying. I mean, we we have to watch out for all of those kinds of extremes. I mean, we are a very personality-driven nation. Period that is really how we're wired as Americans and we have to admit that about ourselves and people who do have the strongest brands Whether they have the best policies or not sometimes win I mean President Trump is an example of that And that is why to a point that mark really opened up with about social media and how we absorb it And how as Americans we have to be on guard even more so than we've ever been in in this in this lifetime to deal with what is true, what is false, you know, what is fake news, what is truth, you know, who's trying to get to the truth a little more, and who's really out there manipulating people. So if it is just about a brand that really does nothing to lift the body politic in this country, then we should be suspicious of that. Anybody that has a brand for the sake of a brand, is something wrong with that. But if your brand identity lifts in ways that changes the dynamics of this country and helps, the people who most need it, then then that, that, the brand is not bad.
0: So I think this goes back to the earlier question about divided government, because right now you've got the two parties and they both say, we're one election away from cleaning the table. And uh, that's just not going to happen. So you get a series of policy instruments that sort of gyrate one way or the other from the Affordable Care Act to the tax, to the tax bill. And that is bad business. Uh, given that you need you need to be able to adjust legislation, when you put in major legislation, it is always flawed. You may be redirecting the country's affairs, but it needs to be adjusted, even if it's even if the direction is correct. And that's that's, I I think we're getting more and more of that, not less and less of. It. I think a lot of people from Cleveland were uh, somewhat disappointed by the recent decision from Senator Brown to decide, well, everybody's going in the indoor, he's going through the outdoor. Were you surprised by um, his uh, choice to do that? And I see that a couple of the candidates have adopted his the dignity of work theme or message. So do you think he sold himself short, perhaps, as a an electable candidate that may be appealed to both sides of the party? And do you see his message as having any value for, from some of the other candidates who, again, are uh, verbatim by using that same phrase in their campaigns?
3: I mean, Tom, the dignity of work is very important. I think, you know, Senator Brown, I think Senator Brown is, was really on to something with that. Uh, him and Senator Sanders are aligned, you know, quite closely. I would say to him and probably Senator Elizabeth Warren as well. Adopting that is not a bad thing because we really do need to have a conversation with the, the, the working class people from all walks of life in this country and in terms of what is important to them. Uh, we find our way, even with the scandal with the colleges, with the elites and the, and the actors and actresses who were involved in that. It's just one more example to everyday Americans in this country that it doesn't matter how hard I work or what I do, to try to get ahead, the system is always rigged and sometimes rigged for even people that I would ordinarily like. So the dignity of work is, is a very good thing for both parties because everybody should be talking about what it will take to get not just jobs. We know that the unemployment rate is low. I think it's about 4%. But when we dig down deeper, again, to the root to get a little radical about it, it really is are there good jobs out there and can people live a good life? And do you have to be a multimillionaire or a billionaire to be able to live a good life? And to me, that is the thing that is rolling through the dignity of work.
4: Clerk. I also think Brown didn't run for, for a couple of reasons. One, I think Biden's going to get in the race, and Brown probably didn't want to compete with a similar um, demographic. Even though I think Brown is a more has more left policies, I think he was a lot of his appeal was to Midwesterners. Um, I think another reason why he might not have run is, has very much to do with Ohio politics, which is there aren't that many Democrats left. On, that, that, and Brown is a kind of Democrat that, you know, the Democratic Party knows he can win Ohio, right? He, you know, his margin of victory was a little bit smaller this time around, but still pretty good, right? So I think that's one thing uh, that probably he figured, I might lose this extremely crowded primary but I can hold this Democratic seat in the Senate for Ohio. So I, I bet that had a lot to do with his decision.
0: For my money, I think it's unfortunate he didn't run because he is a, an individual of substance with a great deal of experience. And uh, I, I, I ran the workforce system in neighboring state of Indiana for a couple of years. Um, I, had a, I remember having a conversation with somebody who ran a not-for-profit in Indianapolis who dealt with multi-generational poverty, you would deal with the kids and then the parents and the grandparents all at once. I said, what's the, what's the answer here? He said, he had concluded after 30 years of work that he thought the most important thing you could do was to get a kid, a kid, a job. Uh,
4: Hillary Clinton didn't appeal to, um, you know, there are there there are I've read you know this eight percent of voters that would have voted for Sanders but that instead voted for Trump and you know these independent voters that this Howard Schultz is you know purporting to want, want to pick up um, and it seems to me that these are voters that Clinton particularly didn't speak to and Trump particularly did speak to and yet there seems to also be this persistent assumption that the way to go for the Democrats is to pick a moderate candidate that appeals to the center. And, and to me, those, those s- things seem to conflict. And I'm wondering how you feel about that.
3: i want to say amen to what you say? <laughs> 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 they do conflict. <laughs> People are looking for vision. They're looking for boldness. They're looking for somebody to speak to their needs. And you can't do that in the middle. Again, no surprise that I'm saying this. When you have almost you know, 40 million people in this country you know, underinsured, you got almost you got 29 million people in this country who have no insurance. You know, I, I just want to give you a real life example. I was just talking to a young lady yesterday when I was in North Charleston. And she just turned 26. And she said, Senator, you know, I had to get all of my wellness. I had to get all my appointments in. Why? Because I am about to be kicked off of my parents' health care. See, that's real. So no one that has a lack of health care want to hear somebody talking about the squishy middle.
2: One thing that's real is we're running out of time. So thank you all. Turn it back over to Stephanie.
1: Today at the City Club, we've been listening to a forum looking ahead to the 2020 presidential election featuring Mark Everson, the 46th Commissioner of Internal Revenue and former Republican candidate for president, Claire Malone, senior political writer for 538, and Nina Turner, former Ohio senator and co-chair of the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. Our moderator was Ideastream Executive Editor Joe Froelich. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Everson, Ms. Malone, Senator Turner, and thank you, Mr. Froelich, for moderating. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here today. This forum is now adjourned.
0: For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club Forums on Ideastream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.